I believe that a founder should be not designing their business to sell, like flip their company kind of thing, but they should be thinking so much about positioning it to offer that strategic value that it gives them options. Um, so I think it starts early. You can start it that thinking almost at the very beginning, but when it becomes super interesting is when you are generating, you know, revenue, you're, you know, high six figures, low seven figures of revenue, you're starting to validate that there's a market. Um, then all of a sudden you can start to combine that strategic thinking and value creation with some real substance. You know, you can put meat on the bone. Well, thanks for joining us, Mac. Um, for those of us and for those of my audience who doesn't know who you are, um, self-described serial entrepreneur, made various exits in the space, um, and your current passion is, is helping other companies and other early stage uh, startups go through their processes and, and, and figure out exactly what their next advice is. Would you consider yourself a consultant? Would you consider yourself a, an advisor? Uh, first and foremost, what would you uh, label yourself as? Yeah, I've always, you know, positioned myself and thought of myself as an entrepreneur. That's kind of my passion and my background. In terms of my, you know, uh, current platform, I really position myself as a founder's advocate. And so I like to get on the same side of the table as a founder and try to help them navigate their business, whether that's to raise capital, exit, or whatever the case may be. So founder advocate is kind of my <laughs> position. Okay. Well, look, I mean, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get started in this, in this space? Um, I always like to ask this specific question is what did you go to school for, if at all? Because I love seeing the, the, the dynamic of how that shifts into what other people end up doing. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So my, um, my life, I think of it in kind of two big, very you know, distinct buckets. The first bucket of life for me was soccer. And I, that was my passion growing up. I played. It's all I really ever wanted to do. I went to college uh, on a soccer scholarship. Um, you know, my goals in life was I wanted to be a collegiate All-American. I wanted to play professionally. And, and college to me was a vehicle to play soccer. Um, I was fortunate that, that, you know, I had that opportunity. So I played through college, uh, did become an All-American, which was, you know, kind of a dream for me. I played one year professionally. Um, this was pre-MLS, which dates me, but I'm, I'm too old to have played in the MLS. And, um, and really traveling or playing abroad wasn't a great option. So I realized at the end of that process that soccer was going to come to an end and I needed to, you know, find what was next. I went, my degree was in psychology, which of course had no immediate application in the business world because you really need an advanced degree to do much with psychology. But I joined a startup that I uh, met from a gentleman that I played soccer with. And I lasted a few months there before I resigned to start my first company. So I technically worked in the marketing department of a startup, 
but really what that was for me is is falling in love with this notion of you know showing up every day your contribution moving the needle you could see what you were doing for this really small company and i really wanted to do my own thing so so i yeah i lasted there a couple months and then in the first quarter of 95 i started my my first business so you said the word lasted twice that is pretty telling um so that tells me that you didn't like working for somebody else um considering you took a jump and created your own company that that further reinforces that um, what can you tell me about that feeling? Uh, because this is a very common echo from most entrepreneurs, right? Uh, myself included that I didn't like certain things. So what was yours? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It, it actually started the very first day on this job. You know, I was a, I was young, super, you know, confident driven. And this company at the time maybe had 10 employees. It was really small. And the very first day, the CEO came in and said, all right, we're going to have a strategy session. Let's go to the conference room. And so I'm all excited. I'm, you know, gathering up my stuff to go in the conference room. And he kind of puts his hand up and, and is like, hey, Mac, why don't you sit down and, you know, answer the phones while we're in here meeting. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy doesn't want my ideas. And it was such a face punch uh, feeling that I was like, you know, I have more to contribute. And it was probably off base because I'm sure I didn't really have any value to add, but I was so, uh, you know, viscerally distraught by the feeling of not being able to contribute that from that moment on, I was immediately thinking, how do I change that? And it was either through navigating through that company really quickly, which I was, you know, starting to do pretty rapidly, but I could just see that ultimately I was not going to be able to make the call I was not going to be able to have the upside and, and I think, you know, not knowing any better, even what the risks were to like resigning and starting my own company. Uh, I just sort of you know, took the leap early and then technically let, you know, never looked back. I mean, the only time I ever worked with, with or for anyone since that moment was when my companies were acquired briefly for whatever the mandatory period was, I would work for the acquirer and then, you know, I had a lot of resign on day 366 kind of, uh, you know, experiences. <laughs> one year, one day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a very interesting fallacy. I mean, and I say, I say fallacy uh, carefully, but there are three, I think that people have when they're starting to switch into going from, from employment mode to uh, starting a business. One is they want to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one is they're tired of the nine to five and they want to have freedom. And the other one is they'd rather work for themselves as opposed to work for somebody else and build for them, build for themselves and build for somebody else. Yeah. Um, what can you tell me about those three and how did that apply to you? Yeah, really interesting insight. I haven't, I haven't heard uh, it characterized that way in terms of those three fallacies. I mean, I think for me at that very early stage, it was clearly, it was not about money um, staying where I was. I was definitely going to make more money um, kind of went to zero to start my first company. And, and really, you know, that first company was a, a garage startup by every standard. You know, we raised $10,000 from a family member and struggled, you know, for, for a good, good while to get it going. So it was really about, I think proving to myself and maybe to other people at that point in my life, I probably cared, you know, what that looked like. Um, in terms of what I was capable of. And I just felt this constraint, um, you know, being in that 
kind of position early in my life where someone was dictating what I could contribute uh, to the business and how my ideas and thoughts and drive might you know play out. And so I just really hated that feeling. So I guess ultimately it was kind of fallacy three, you know, you know, wanting to work for myself and prove to myself what I was capable of. Understood. Um, walk me through a little bit in terms of what you did next, right? So you started your first business. What's the story about that? And if you can walk us through the next subsequent businesses and ideas that you've had. Yeah. So, you know, timing was really interesting in uh, first quarter of 95, the startup that I was working for and uh, briefly was in the educational software space. And we saw this opportunity to take what was, you know, loosely classified as multimedia software back in the day. And we thought there was a huge business application for it. You know, the, the fact that you could use animation and sound and video and all these different things to communicate, we were using it in the educational market. And I thought there's got to be a really significant business opportunity here. I met a, an engineer at that company that was my co-founder when we left to start our first company. So we basically started an early kind of custom software development company was, was what we intended to start. But the timing was such that, you know, Netscape launches the commercial web browser in the first quarter of 95 or I guess late 94 right as about the time we were launching. And so we saw the internet in its very first commercial iteration and hired a very, you know, younger than me, a a young kid out of college that, uh, you know, had a little bit of early experience uh, on the internet. And so we became very, very early innovators in the internet space. And so in the Southeastern US where I was based and still am based, um, you know, we were the first people talking to fortune 100 companies in this area, you know, big banks, big energy companies about using the internet. And we caught that wave really well. Um, Looking back in hindsight, of course, rose colored glasses. It was an amazing ride. It was, you know, what a great time, what a great experience. We built a, you know, zero to eight figure, you know, exit in three years. So it was a, a life changing kind of experience in a lot of ways. But the reality of those, you know, first couple of years was it was a really, it was a struggle because um, we were educating the market. We didn't have, nobody was calling us looking for, you know, web-based applications or anything like that. We were really educating the market on, on what we could do and what the internet meant and what e-commerce might become. So it was really, it was really hard, but the result of ultimately selling the company and then the buyer subsequently going public Um, it was just such an eye opener for me that, you know, if you work hard, you create something of value, not only can you monetize it and exit, um, you can do it in a way that is really hard to replicate in uh, any other environment. You know, that short period of time, kind of, you know, zero dollars to, you know, 10, you know, 10 million or whatever in a short period of time. It's like, wow, that, that is really appealing. So had that great experience, uh, resigned after the IPO, literally the day after the, the acquire went public, I resigned, started my next company, which was the first time of several that I took my passion for soccer, which we talked about from a background perspective, and my new love of, of kind of internet technology. And we created a, a destination site for soccer enthusiasts. Uh, again, we're really, really early so we, we got, you know, from kind of a standing start 
about 8 million unique visitors a month from around the world, you know, built the company, sold it to a public media company in Europe 14 months later. So that like crazy rapid journey of building a company um, was amazing. And we sold it. Uh, we had a term sheet from a big investor in New York in March of 2000, NASDAQ crashes, uh, you know, world feels like it's falling apart. We ended up selling the company uh, in another kind of eight figure, you know, exit in July of 2000. So after the NASDAQ sort of bubble burst, wow. uh, okay. we were able to exit, which was, which was really good. Um, so those how, were my first how did, you, first year. how did you manage to do that? Um, considering that at that time, you know, consumer mentality was, was really restrictive. Mm -hmm. um, buying mentality was even more so from investors and from private equity firms. How did you manage to, to make that exit at, at such a tur turbulent time? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting how now, um, again, looking back, it's easy when you look back on things, uh, it's really become kind of a core tenet of one of the things that I do now working with founders is we were so focused on strategic value that during that brief period of building up this company, we were acquiring a lot of unique content. We were hiring a lot of really interesting, unique people. So when the market kind of crashes, there were these big media companies, particularly in Europe, where the, it hadn't been quite as decimated. So ultimately, the company that bought us was a division of News Corp, Sky, and they were you know, very interested in the assets that we had accumulated, some proprietary content that we you know, purchased for next to nothing. Um, but we were the only source in the world for it, for soccer, which was giant in Europe. Yeah. Um, and then the other was uh, they were very interested in the American technology market. So they were, you know, a European based media business and they wanted a foothold in the U.S. from a technology perspective. So it was kind of a, you know, the assets that we had as well as they wanted a, a team, you know, boots on the ground and a presence in the U.S. So that was what really drove the acquisition. So did you quit the day after that acquisition too? One year later. Yeah. I actually <laughs> ran, uh, I ran North America and South America for the, for them yeah. for, uh, yeah, w one year and one day. So <laughs> <laughs> starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So uh, you've exited from, from six firms at this point you mentioned or eight, yes. six, six. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here's a here's an interesting question. What would you say is your most successful exit? And juxtapose that with what would you say is was your baby? Yeah, that's a really yeah, good questions. Um so I would say honestly my first and last exits were were both equally valuable to me, you know, in terms of if if I had to pick best um, results because the first one was, you know, a, a life changer, just, you know, having some early liquidity and, you know, quote unquote wealth, I guess, as a, as a very young person was, it allowed me to check off my, you know, bucket list of material things really early in life and, you know, set me up in a, in a nice way. Um, and then my last exit, I would say was, was probably, I had learned so much about structure and doing things certain ways. I think I, exited that one kind of the cleanest and the best. Mm -hmm. um, but the second company, which was that sort of, you know, fusion of technology and soccer, which I did one more time, my fifth company was kind of similar. 
but that one was hard to let go of, even though we sold it and did very well. Um, I didn't want to sell it. I was, I felt forced to sell it given the times I ultimately bought back the URL and some of the assets, but it was just, you know, we had lost so much momentum, but I think, I think about it, not a lot, but I, I think, you know, a fair amount. What if I was able to hang on to that business through the kind of the bust having 8 million, you know, unique visitors a month, what, what that would be like in a world where e-commerce is real because we had an e-commerce platform before anybody was buying. So we couldn't monetize it really yet. Yeah. But you know, I love that business. I love what we were doing. Um, but you know, sort of the times where we, we needed to exit, um, or raise an enormous amount of money, which was not really possible at that moment. So. Okay. Um, so it's pretty clear that you're, um, you're an expert in building businesses up to this point. You've identified some sort of a formula because you've done it over and over again. Um, regardless of industry, regardless of strategy, regardless of market, what would you say are some of the fundamental things that need to be in place for somebody like a startup founder or somebody who's considering getting into creating a business and et cetera? Yeah, I think over, um, over the years, the kind of critical success factors, I mean, the, the people far and away the biggest contributor to success. So whether that's co-founders, investors, board of advisors, you know, the companies that I look back at and I think about what I would do in the future, it, it almost always starts with some form of people. And the other part of that, the other reason for that, I mean, there's some obvious, you know, people are critical and, and you have the right people, great things happen. But the other is most of my companies, if you looked at where we started, kind of the thesis that we started with or the product that we started with versus what we sold some number of years later, it was almost always, you know, significantly different. And that was, I attributed to a team's ability to, you know, go where the market was telling us to go, pivot when we needed to, you know, kind of bend and lean into the opportunity and not be overly stuck on an original idea. Um, so I think some combination of agility for a founder is important. Um, and then definitely the team. The other mistake I see a lot, it's kind of twofold. One is people thinking that raising capital is one of the first steps in the process when I kind of fundamentally disagree. To me, capital raise is when you have proven something and you're trying to turn up the volume on what's working. It is not the step to, you know, check off before you build a product or before you validate something. And I hear that a shocking amount where founders come to me and they're trying to raise money and they're like, you know, we've got this cool idea. So now if we could just raise a million, we're going to really take it to market. I'm like, now you're, you're doing it backwards. Um, so the capital raise kind of timing is, is something I think that's really important for people to understand and hear. Um, and as part of that, it's kind of that market validation. You know, I, I always talk about concentric circles with founders where, you know, you can always get your mom or your wife or your spouse or your next door neighbor to agree that you have a good idea. But as you move out concentric circles to, you know, people you don't know that well and ultimately get out to people that are truly cold perspective buyers of your product or service, you kind of have to go through those concentric circles iterating as you go out to prove that you actually have something because 
if you go from a tight concentric circle to raising money or going to market, you really haven't validated the concept. And so, I, you know, I think I learned that along the way. We made plenty of mistakes. It wasn't all like we did it brilliantly. We did it wrong and then learned and iterated. But those are some of the big things that I at least try to focus on with uh, first time or early entrepreneurs. Um, I love that actually. And I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, the way I describe it is, you know, capital raising shouldn't be the spark. It should be the, 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 the field to the fire. Yes. Um, you can, it's very easy in my opinion to throw away a lot of money, um, when you don't know what to do with it. Um, you build the scrappiness first and then you become really cheap. You become really resourceful. Yes. You, you make small things count. And then when you suddenly have a lot, then you can take that money a lot further than somebody who, you know, um, yeah. so that's, that's been my opinion. But I, I mean, it's very interesting that you say that because a lot of, you know, pre-seed um, investors will disagree with you, right? They'll say, no, you need it right away. <laughs> no. And I, and I tell you the other word you just used, um, that I think about a lot is, is I like to almost intentionally constrain companies and founders, myself included early on, because it really drives the creativity. I, I watched it happen. One of my you know, early companies where I was, uh, I was kind of doing two things in parallel. I was running one company. I was helping another one get started and they raised, um, it was a million dollars. So it wasn't a fortune, but enough to really put a startup, you know, down the road. And I watched the decisioning of the team. I was technically chairman, but there was a CEO, there was a you know COO in place, and they're high, you know they're hiring people really quickly, and they're putting Herman Miller chairs everywhere, and they're doing all this stuff. And I'm like, man, you know, I've had companies that are much further along, much more successful, that are sitting in pretty terrible chairs. And ultimately, the board called me to come in, and I had to pretty much save the company. Uh, when it was almost out of money, but it was not because of anything brilliant I did by any means. It was when we were forced to get down to what's the real product, who there's a real team here and just be constrained by capital. All of a sudden the business took off. And so it can be a, it can be a negative as much as a positive for sure. Raising money. I want to switch gears for a second and I want to come back to this, but I was on your LinkedIn and I saw on your featured section, you have a picture with Messi and a picture with Neymar. <laughs> Correct. Yes. What's the, uh, what's the story behind that? Yeah. So, well, you know, as I said, I'm a uh, kind of a soccer has been my passion. I um, in high school, I was selected by a team, a U.S. team that that went to uh, South America and played. And I, I had the amazing privilege of of not only meeting Pele, I went to his house and wow. um, had this you know phenomenal kind of life changing experience and. Um, so after that point, I mean, one of the things that I had on my mental bucket list was making the soccer experience, which was a passion, um, you know, as amazing as possible, which in my mind at the time meant, you know, going to World Cup finals and going to big games and in crazy places around the world. But over the years, I was able to, you know, navigate into a, um, a unique position. One of my, actually my last company um, was the largest partner of FC Barcelona in the U.S., I think probably in the world. Um, and so, you know, I moved to Barcelona. I had 50-yard line season tickets, uh, you know, at Camp Nou. Um, got to go to private practices, met Messi, uh, met Neymar, all the, all the players. Um, and 
Really, the funny thing is, uh, oh, this is when Neymar was in Barcelona. Okay. Do what? This is when Neymar was in Barcelona. Okay. Yeah, this was. Yeah, exactly. Neymar was in Barcelona. Um, and the the ironic thing is, the one player who was who was probably my favorite growing up, uh, Ronaldinho. I just thought he was kind of on the backside of his career, and I would never have an opportunity to meet him, or um, you know, just be in his presence or whatever. Never saw him play live. Uh, anyway, long story short, he signed on as an ambassador to Barcelona and I got invited to a little event in New York where he, it was a really small, intimate event and, and Ronaldinho was there. Um, wow. And not only, the funny thing that you'll appreciate if you're a soccer fan is it was, a Bar- it, was, it was an FC Barcelona event. However, in my jacket hidden, I had a, his Flamingo jersey. And so when I got in front of him and like sat, you know, face to face with him, um, I, I pulled it out of my jacket thinking I might get tackled by somebody, at, you know, from Barcelona, but you should have seen the smile on his face when he saw me pull it out and he signed it and I got a picture with him. And so, uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been really fortunate to check off some amazing bucket list stuff with players and, uh, experiences like that. So I've got an interesting story for you actually. So a little while ago, I think a couple of years ago in Canada, um, uh, I believe Barcelona came to, to play a game here. Yes. Uh, this was over the summer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had the chance of, of getting a signature from, uh, from Messi. Um, and I had him sign it on my Ronaldo jersey. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love it. I love and it. Was on, it, was, it was on like the, it was on the, the, the Real Madrid jersey and everything. And he just kind of gave me this look and he just, he just did it anyway. So That's funny. <laughs> Um, okay, so so kind of coming back to this, I just, I just thought that I saw the pictures right now. I just thought I had to ask. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so my audience is, and much of who I believe would resonate uh, with this sort of you know conversation are startup founders who are alongside the same cohort as I, or uh, you know are in my network and they're in the process of building their business, starting to get to revenue and all of those things. Your expertise is in the exit space, right? In, in not only consulting forward, but also being able to help founders make the decisions and et cetera. Um, what are some of the things you look for when you're looking to determine which company is ready for an exit or which company is not and how long they're out from a potential exit? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I've been through all of the, the various, you know, startup challenges. So I, I, I generally love working with entrepreneurs and founders at, at various stages, but I think where I have found some unique um, opportunities and I have a unique offering to some extent is in the exit space. And I created this program called Exit DNA. And the real core thesis of that was if I look back over my six exits, not once did I ever sell on a financial multiple. You know, it was never X times EBITDA you know, Y times revenue, it was always some form of strategic value that we created that was so important to the market or so important to the buyer that I ultimately found that they were willing to pay a massive premium over what would have been, you know, a not so great multiple of, you know, an early stage company's revenue or, or EBITDA or lack of. So, you know, I've, I've had this kind of view for a long time because it's what I was doing uh, for 25 years, but that if I created enough value, ideally proprietary value, proprietary products and unique things, that I was creating a tremendous amount of optionality 
at which point, if you have options and you've created value, you can turn that into a lot of different things. You can raise money, you can recap your business, you can sell your business, or you can just be the beneficiary of a great business. You can be a owner operator, if you will. And so I spend a lot of time, I have, I have plenty of friends that are investment bankers and I'm not in any way anti-investment bankers or M&A advisors, but I spend most of my time in this kind of founder advocacy role working with founders on how to create a, a plan to optimize that strategic value. So people that join my programs, typically I tell them if you are two years away from needing or wanting to exit, it's, it's kind of perfect because you have enough time that the little things that we'll do will compound into a ton of value. But what inevitably happens, whether that exit is five years out, 10 years out, um, if you start doing those things early enough, um, opportunities appear. I have someone in, in my current exit DNA cohort who was on a five-year plan. He really wanted to recap his business, buy some partners out, thought he might sell it in five years. He was in exit DNA for about six months and we were really turning the dials on all these different things, how he positioned his company, how he told the story. And he's getting offers literally in the middle of this crisis that he called me last week and said, I don't think I can turn them down. Um, so I believe that a founder should be not designing their business to sell, like flip their company kind of thing, but they should be thinking so much about positioning it to offer that strategic value that it gives them options. Um, so I think it starts early. You can start it that thinking almost at the very beginning, but when it becomes super interesting is when you are generating, you know, revenue, you're, you know, high six figures, low seven figures of revenue, you're starting to validate that there's a market. Um, then all of a sudden you can start to combine that strategic thinking and value creation with some real substance, you know, you can put meat on the bone. So that's, that's usually the perfect, you know, when things really intersect in my opinion. I see. And you mentioned that exit DNA is a, sort of a cohort style um, system. Can you explain that a little bit and how your program works? Yeah. So it's, it's basically, um, it is technically a year long program that's broken into three parts. Um, when people join exit DNA, they get immediate access to kind of a, an online platform that has videos and exercises. I call it the exit runway. And it's basically just getting them kind of the up, up to speed on the mindset and how I think about this process. Um, and the real kind of kickoff is when we start a live cohort, which uh, typically like I'm starting one in two weeks, but we typically cap it at about 12 founders. We do eight weeks of live small group coaching. It's usually about an hour, hour and a half a week for eight weeks. Everything's recorded. It's on the platform in the cloud. So people can't join live, but we go through a very deep dive in preparing a company for that option to be sold, mitigating risk, all those kind of things. I do that kind of live. And then throughout the rest of the year, it's structured as a mastermind. So we have these cohorts and as soon as the cohort ends, they're kind of in with other founders that are on this journey. And we do a monthly mastermind call and then I bring in domain experts every month. So we have intellectual property attorneys talking about, you know, maximizing intellectual property value of a company or branding experts. Tomorrow I'm doing one on, with a, a leadership and management expert. So it's the real, real focus is this, this eight weeks of what I call the exit accelerator. 
but people have the the whole year to kind of interact with you know each other and it's a it's a really cool thing to watch not only me present you know my thoughts and my experiences but to watch founders start to interact with each other and ask questions and share thoughts it's it's a pretty cool model so uh so yeah that's kind of how it's structured Okay. What about in terms of your selection process? How, I mean, you've talked a little bit about who you think is ready and who you think is not. Um, what is the criteria for somebody who may be interested in your program? How can they um, find more information? How can they apply? And what is that process like? Yeah. So um, there's a couple different things. So I, you know, my primary personal website is maclackey.com. Um, and I have information below as well. Yeah. So information on me and my kind of what I do, because I, I also think feel very strongly that, you know, my approach isn't for everyone. The way I've chosen to build my companies or live my life, you can get a sense of all that, you know, good or bad um, from my site. But then I have uh, exitdna.com, which talks about the program. Um, there's an application on there. What tends to happen is I speak to founders that are interested um, you know, on a quick call and it's kind of a mutual interview process and I send them a little more detailed information. I can connect them to people that are already in the program if they want, you know, I've got some great, you know, testimonials and people that love what, what they're doing. So it's really a, um, it's kind of a, a application process, but it's not a rigid criteria. I mean, the range of people currently in exit DNA, have two pretty early stage startups that really just wanted to, do it from the beginning, build it right, set up every option. Um, I have, you know, one member who will probably exit for 240, $250 million in the next couple months doing, you know, a ton of just building a great business, you know? So it's a, it's a pretty broad range, but the sweet spot kind of the middle is that, you know, high six, low seven figure kind of revenue business that's starting to get traction and wants to have, that full set of options, maybe raise money, maybe recap it, maybe sell it. Um, that's when I think I can add. And I always tell founders it's a, you know, 10 to a hundred uh, X ROI because people joining my program, if they don't add hundreds of thousands, if not millions to their exit value, I, I you know, would absolutely shock me. Um, so I think, you know, most people that join are thinking at some point I'm going to exit because three quarters of entrepreneurs say they want to exit someday. And if this increases the odds, because the odds are only one in five that you'll actually get to an exit. Um, and not only can you increase the odds of an exit, but you can theoretically increase the exit value. The ROI can be, you know, super high on that. So that's the way I kind of think about it. Okay. Um, naturally, a lot of the people that I work with are VCs. Um, yeah. I can, you know, think of a few right at the top of my head who Obviously, as you can imagine, VCs are very, very well invested into the, the exit strategy of a company. Yep. Do you find that VCs like their companies uh, working with somebody like you or somebody in your position? Or do you feel that VCs like to take that control themselves? That's a fair question. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I have not. I have not it's kind of on the you know radar for me to, to think about going forward. I would say it's probably highly dependent on the, uh, the, the venture group and their kind of culture and philosophy on how, you know, operational they are, how involved they are on the board. Um, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm a, um, I'm a partner in a very large angel group 
that has about 70 portfolio companies. And, you know, we've created a really, really strong alignment recently that it is certainly in the angel network's best interest to do anything they can to drive up the value and increase the likelihood of an exit because they benefit directly. And it's a really great, you know, opportunity or market for me because these are not only founders that are building and growing companies, because they have investors, they're almost mandated that they have to exit or have to monetize. And so it's kind of a perfect world. Yeah. But I have not yet, uh, it'd be really interesting to, to, you know, dig in a little bit more to talk to some venture capitalists to say, you know, hey, what's the, what's the model look like having your founders participate in a, in a program like ours? Um, and I would assume that, that a good percentage would really like the idea. They might want to vet it. They may want to balance it off, you know, what they do. But I will say a number of people come through Exit DNA and either on their own, they decide to, you know, sell their own companies. They don't engage a banker or if they engage in banker, sometimes I remain in that kind of founder's advocacy role, helping the founder even better get more out of their investment bankers. Um, and so I think a venture capitalist would like every part of that. But again, that's just kind of early, you know, thesis. I haven't really talked to enough to know yet. So. Well, it seems like now you have a, another area and, and channel to explore. I hope so. um we are getting close to our time um obviously attention span is going down and down these days of course we like to keep it to a certain amount and certain number i do want to give you the floor though um i think that you've obviously highlighted some interesting things um maybe talk about what's important to you right now what's next do you have any interesting things in the works um all yours Yeah, no, thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me. I think as much as anything at this point in life, I am trying to uh, balance the fact that I am super driven and want to help a lot of people with a model that I think will sustain my own interest to your attention point. Um, So I've tried to design kind of exit DNA and, and even really my life in a way that I think is, you know, scalable and sustainable for the long term. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm involved in a number of other companies as an investor or partner or whatever, just because it's, it's very natural that if I meet someone that's doing something interesting, I can really help them and they're interested in collaborating with me. There's a natural synergy that happens, but you know, I, I also have a, a huge priority and have for many years around my family. You know, I have a, I have two girls, one's, uh, just finished her freshman year in college and the wow. other one's in high school. And, uh, you know, during the period of building up my companies, you know, I pulled them out of school for a year and we traveled the world while I was building a company. And then we moved to Barcelona. And so we, we've had this huge priority on, you know, balancing what I want to do with, with, you know, work and, and my professional life with the, uh, you know, the family and the experiences that matter. Um, so, you know, that remains a huge, huge priority, spend as much time as I can with them. And then every other moment to me is if I'm, if I'm on the phone or working directly with a founder, um, I'm happy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm getting energy from it. I think I'm adding value. At least I hope I am. Uh, so that's probably, you know, disproportionate amount of time is going to be spent on that in the future. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly is, is, is admirable, especially the, the ability to be able to manage, manage personal with, with, with the business, because, even me, for example, I'm finding myself doing 16, 17 hours a day. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't know what a home life is anymore. So, I mean, technically we're all home now, but yeah. that is my home life now, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, this is really cool. I'm, I'm glad you were able to take the time to actually do this because it's the, the nature of the people that are in my network, as I mentioned, you made one really, really big mistake, I think, which is you've admitted that you're part of a large angel group because, you know, likely you're going to get hit up by a lot of people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> um, but, you know, that comes with the territory, I guess. Yes. Um, some really, really good insights. Uh, so the information for Exit DNA, uh, I'll be putting that into the comments and et cetera below so that everyone has an access to go through that. Um, we'll be putting a link to your website as well. Um, just lastly, do you, do you care about geography in terms of where these guys are or, or? No, no. As a matter of fact, I, I mean, you know, current members of Exit DNA, um, all over the country, um, one outside the U S um, and yeah, I would, I would prefer the diversity of geography and ideas and industry. And, um, so yeah, no, no, no rules or, or regulations around that. The only caveat would be there is clearly some value in the live sessions, even though they're all recorded and everything's out on the platform. So if, if someone was in a time zone or in an area that made it prohibitive for them to ever be on a session live, I would probably say to them, you're not going to get as much value as you could or should. But that aside, you know, no, no limits at all. Understood. Well, Mac, thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Great having you back as well. Oh, yeah.